Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, the results of Nature's latest PhD survey and the absence of older women in science fiction. I'm Shamini Bandel. And I'm Nick Howe. Before we start the show proper, a quick announcement. We want to make the podcast even better, but we need your help. We're launching our 2019 listener survey, and we want to find out what do you like? What are you not so keen on? This is your chance to let us know. We'd really appreciate it if you could just give us 10 minutes of your time to fill it out. In fact, if you do, we've made a little behind-the-scenes video as a thank you. You can find the survey over at go.nature.com slash podsurvey19. Speaking of surveys, this week Nature is publishing the third in a series of features written about PhD students based on the results of a survey of early career researchers. Earlier this week, David Payne, Nature's chief careers editor, dropped into the studio for a chat with Noah Baker to tell us more about the survey, the findings and what comes next. Here's David. Well, it's a survey that we run every two years. Um, we've done it since 2011. So I think this is our fifth survey this year. Um, also, the highest response rate that we had this year, we had 6,300 responses from all over the world, which we're absolutely delighted with. And we do it for two reasons already. One is to get a snapshot um, of, you know, what the graduate student landscape is around the world. You know, what are the pain points? What are the what are people feeling positive about? What are people finding more challenging? Um, and we get, obviously, we get lots of free text responses in as well. So we also use the those to, you know, kind of look at what the, um, what the trends are and how we might kind of um, address those trends during the sort of following two years. And we'll get to some of those in a, in a minute. But before that, when you're writing this survey, it's a list of questions that, that is sent out online. How do you 
come up with those questions? What's your process? It's important for us to ask you know, similar questions year on year so that we can actually get a sense of how the landscape is shifting. But um, every two years, we introduce new questions. We reached out to our community of authors and readers and said, you know, like we're running the survey this year. What do you think we should be asking? And I have to say that yielded some fantastic responses. You know, we got, we've introduced questions this year around student debt. We've introduced questions around bullying harassment, things that you kind of thought, I can't believe we weren't asking these originally. You've had all these results back and you're doing various things with them. What are the overarching trends? Are you seeing things that you've seen before? Are they continuing? Are things changing? The kind of take-home message I felt from two years ago, which was a surprise to us, was the the amount of people that are still really hankering for a career in academia. But the other thing that leapt out at us two years ago was this whole question around graduate student mental health. And I, I think the survey two years ago really helped get that topic talked about an awful lot. So it was a question that we obviously had to ask again this year. And two years ago, I think 12% overall said that they'd sought help for anxiety and depression caused by their graduate studies. And this year, um, it was even higher. So it's like almost one in three, uh, which for me was, was a, you know, was a very stark reminder of the pressures that PhD students are facing. Now, I'm also really interested in hearing another branch to this PhD survey, which is the free text responses you, you, you referred yes. to earlier on. And there was some really insightful stuff that came back. Someone said that they have sleeping bags in their, in their lab in Japan. D- did any of these really surprise you? Yeah, so that, that one really let out at us. And the other ones that spring to mind was this really, you know, kind of fundamental question was, should a PI be seen as a mentor, a colleague or a boss? And I think we have to unpick that a little bit because that's a really interesting observation about, you know, what a supervisor should be. Um, and yes, there was a reference about sleeping bags in the lab in Japan and, you know, work-life balance and working hours got talked about an awful lot in the survey. Um, there was also a question around entrepreneurship. Um, and then the other one that I think really leapt out at me was, does the world really need that many PhDs. A whole bunch of things to unpack there. When people say, do we really need that many PhDs? Are they saying people shouldn't be doing research anymore or just doing research in a different way? Well, I think it's about managing expectations, isn't it? And I think it's people going into the PhD programme with their eyes open, knowing what the opportunities are, knowing what the landscape is like, doing their research beforehand and to uh, to value the PhD for what it is, which is a, you know, a hopefully a rewarding, very intense exercise that will make you a better project manager, you know, bring you all these other skills, um, teamworking, collaboration, science communication, just really trying to harness all the things that a PhD gives you without sort of uh, limiting your options when you embark upon it. And in terms of the options you might have out the end of your PhD, uh, one of the responses that you had was about how many people are interested in joining startups, perhaps, or moving into tech firms after their PhD. And of course, these sort of academic associated startups are becoming more and more prevalent. Is this something that you have been looking into in the careers section of nature? Yes, we've done, we did quite a few things in 2019 around sort of the entrepreneurship side of science, you know, um, the business of science, as it were. So I know that in 2020, we'll be looking at this in a lot more detail and actually showcasing, um, you know, examples of great entrepreneurship and innovative startups. And if there's anyone listening that didn't get a chance to fill in the careers survey or perhaps has any other thoughts that they might want to to send to you, their experiences, questions they might have, is there somewhere they can send that? Yes. So um, we, have, we have a dedicated email address called naturecareerseditor at nature.com. So if there's a topic that um, you read about in the survey that you, you feel that you've got a personal story to tell about, you know, do do please bear us in mind and um, you know we'd be delighted to hear from you. That was David Payne, Chief Careers Editor here at Nature. You can read more about the survey in three features over at nature.com slash news. You can also listen out for more on PhD Life over at our sister podcast, Working Scientist, 
which is made by David and his team. Find that wherever you get your podcasts. At the end of the show, we'll be hearing about the uncovering of new artefacts in Egypt. That's coming up in the news chat. Right now, it's time for this week's research highlights, read by Dan Fox. Tortoises are famously slow, even when beating hares in races. But though their limbs are slow, it looks like their minds might be a little quicker. At least quick enough to learn a simple memory task. Experimenters working with giant tortoises in Austria and Switzerland taught them to bite at a coloured dog toy on a stick in return for food. The giant Galapagos and Seychelles tortoises quickly got the hang of the task and, in the next stage, learn to pick a particular colour from a choice of two different coloured toys. Some of the tortoises were tested again nine years after the initial training, and though they didn't remember which colour they were supposed to choose, they picked up the task much quicker this time around. This suggests that these long-lived reptiles also have long-lived memories. Don't forget to go to Animal Cognition for more on that. Magic mushrooms, those containing psilocybin and psilocin, are best known for their psychedelic properties. But if you see these fungi start to turn blue, don't worry, you may not be hallucinating. A number of mushrooms have the peculiar property of turning blue if they are damaged or bruised. But what exactly caused this unusual colour has been the subject of debate. Now, researchers in Germany say they've pinned down the exact chemical reactions responsible. They identified two key enzymes which catalyzed the conversion of psilocybin into a mixture of oxidized molecules, resulting in a blue color. It seems likely that the reactions are part of the fungus's chemical defense system. Have a dose of that paper in the journal Agavanta Chemie. is filled with archetypes. Whether it's science fiction or fantasy, common tropes include the young hero, guided by the wise old mentor, fighting the villain and possibly rescuing a princess along the way. Women tend to get a bit of a raw deal in general in fiction. I've seen far too many films where the only female character is a love interest for the male hero. But there's a particular group of women who are even more underrepresented in fiction, and that's older women. This week, I spoke to Sylvia Sprook Wrigley, who's been digging into how old women are represented in science fiction novels specifically. Sylvia joined me in the studio, and before getting on to science fiction literature, I wanted to ask her about old women in fiction more generally. Who are they? Who would be the equivalent of Gandalf or Obi-Wan Kenobi or Professor X? Who are the famous older women? So the one genre that gives us a lot of older women is cosy mysteries. And for some reason, you now have this little old lady solving mysteries, and that appears to be the old woman's genre. You do get women in supporting roles in fantasy. So 
Professor McGonagall in Harry Potter is an example of this and Lady Olena, Queen of Thorns. So that's Marjorie Trell's grandmother in Game of Thrones. Exactly, exactly. And she really does steal the show and she is active, but that's really not typical for old women. Generally speaking, they are there to be interactive with, but not in a strong position of their own. And how did you come to be interested in looking at science fiction and literature in particular? The whole thing started because I had made a statement saying that in speculative fiction, women are in these supportive roles. And somebody pointed out to me that all of my examples were fantasy. And I said, no, that's fine. Science fiction has the same thing going on, for example. And then I didn't have an answer. And It seemed very obvious to me that I wanted to look at novels so that I could see what's specifically happening in science fiction and in this futuristic view of the world to come. Where were the old women and what were they doing? So you've got an an essay that you've written for Nature's Books and Arts section where you've specifically gone into the literature and done a search and said, right, where are the grandmothers? Where are the old women? And and what did you find? I actually crowdsourced the problem because I realised that trying to get through the huge amount of science fiction there is was going to take me, I would probably not survive to finish the job. Be an old woman yourself. And exactly. And in talking to people, I did get some some good examples. And so I thought, well, I need to talk to more people. I used the internet. I used conferences. I used science fiction clubs in different countries trying to get a view. The first thing I found with crowdsourcing is I needed to do definitions. What is a woman? This got very complicated because immediately because it's like, well, it's, she's an AI But she uses a female pronoun and it's like, okay, but she doesn't have a lifespan. Then the question, which is still kind of an open question, is what is old? How old do you have to be to be an old woman? So the definition I came up with for old was that the woman has clearly lived most of her expected lifespan and she has more years behind her than ahead of her. That's a nice scientific definition that can apply to different alien races. Yes. And did you find that your sort of initial top-of-the-head calculation that, oh, there really aren't many. Did that hold true? Well, originally what I said was, I'm going to find all these books and I am making a lifetime commitment to read every single one of them. And now that I've actually narrowed down the field, I could read all those books in a year. I'm actually probably halfway through them now. So it's no longer as big a project as I thought it was going to be. And so do you feel that this... Uh, lack of older women in science fiction has anything to do with then in in real science, in, in sort of STEM fields, there's a lack of women or there's a lack of women maybe staying in those fields. Is that all sort of tied together? I think it's absolutely tied together. And a lot of people say, well, it used to be a problem, but it's not so much a problem now. But when you look at the science fiction literature, In 1940 was the first Susan Kelvin story, which was a part of Asimov's iRobot series. So at that point, he could see a future with women who were scientists and logical and together. And yet we're still in this position where women are treated as more emotional, as less reliable, as less logical. And the amount of people who, when I say, well, women in science fiction and women in STEM, they say Susan Calvin. I say, great, who else? Because everybody knows this particular character, but there is a 
real lack of similar women. And if you look at stories that are based on scientists and engineers, the older ones are all male. And so you were sort of mostly focusing on on women in science fiction literature. Um, but you mentioned the, in the essay, you also looked at non-binary characters. You looked at the sort of intersection of race with, with that as well. Um, what did you find there? I was very much aware pretty early on that this was a very, very white landscape. In my submissions, in my data, there were a number of people who put forward, well, there there is this book about non-binary people or this book about a non-gendered society or aliens who are not gendered. I didn't particularly look at that angle, but I did find that there was a similar problem that it doesn't seem to intersect with older characters or especially not older human characters. The other interesting correlation I found was that most of the women were sort of vanilla heterosexual, either never having thought about sex ever or fondly remembering the men of their youth, but that's it. Now, there were some exceptions to this, and what really struck me was that every single exception was identified in the book as lesbian or bisexual. It sounds like there's a lot more that you could go into. But to finish us up, I mean, I'm, I'm someone who is hoping to one day be an old woman, um, as I imagine you are as well. So as as a writer and for me as a, as a reader, is there anything that we can be doing to kind of help this current lack of older women in science fiction? For a writer, there's a very obvious thing that if you write a extremely sexually active and excited woman who is heterosexual and over 50, then you've already broken boundaries that most people didn't even realize existed. A trans woman over 40 would be a win, you know? So there's some very simple characters that just don't exist yet. I've been excited at conferences where I've been talking about this to have people approach me and say, you know, I'm thinking about my main character and I made her 30 and now that I think about it, she's got the experience. Why shouldn't she be 60? So I think I'm going to have to stop the project because I'm now influencing my data, but I'm pleased about that. That was writer Sylvia Sprook Wrigley. You can find the essay she's written about the invisibility of women in science fiction over at nature.com forward slash books dash culture. Finally on the show, it's time for the news chat and I'm joined in the studio by Essen Masood, Nature's Africa and Middle East editor. Essen, hi. Hello, Nick. Thanks for joining me. So for our first story this week, well, it's been a busy few months for Egyptologists. It certainly has been a busy few months. At the middle of October, middle of last month, there was probably one of the biggest ever coffin finds. 30 coffins sealed, found, probably the biggest such find in about 100 years. And then just uh, a few days ago, there was another huge find, but this time of animal mummies and animal statues. There were crocodiles, certainly some cats, Probably, we think, a couple of those would have been lion cub mummies. And that's the only other time that that's been found was in 2004 by a French team. So that really is extremely rare. Wow. So um, presumably then the researchers involved in this field are quite excited. They are very excited. And it's come as a bit of a surprise because they were all meeting. They have their sort of big annual congress. And this year they just finished their annual congress just a couple of weeks back in uh, Cairo. And they didn't really know what was happening. All of this was being uncovered by uh, Egypt's government, which is in charge of all of the research. So yes, surprised and excited. 
Despite this excitement, though, not everyone will be able to look at these finds as it stands at the moment. That's right, yes. So under the rules of Egypt's Ministry of Antiquities, which has overall responsibility, so the first thing they're going to be doing, and they are doing now, is CT scans, uh, computerized tomography scans uh, of of the remains because they can't open the coffins in the way in the old days they used to be able to you know take them apart unwrap them and that was basically pretty wrong so they these days it's all non-invasive so there's a lot of scanning to be done then they're saying then first dibs for the actual research is going to be given to Egypt-based institutions. Mm, and I suppose, if you'll pardon the pun, there's a bit of history that means that Egypt might be a bit cautious about letting people in there. Oh, goodness, yeah. I mean, talk about the history. Modern Egyptology is a pretty young field, and it emanates essentially from colonial times when Egypt was very much part of the, the then great power rivalries between France and Britain when they were both big sort of empire nations. And a lot of researchers, as was the way, would go in, they would take artifacts. Often there would be theft, there'd be no permissions, they'd bring them back. Often they'd be sold on the black market, some of which is still happening. And then, of course, there's the the really big artifacts that we know are sitting in museums. So some of the material from the last coffin find is in places like uh, Leiden in the Netherlands. And then, of course, where, where we're sitting here in London there's the uh, the famous Rosetta Stone um, in the British Museum. So Egypt has a lot to be worried about, there's no doubt. With uh, the worries that they have, like how will researchers and the community move forward? So the, the way forward would be for Egypt to lead or to put out calls for consortia, where an Egyptian institution, a university, the Supreme Council of Antiquities, uh, could say, here's what our requirements are, here are the questions that we want answering. And, hey, universities of the world, come and join us. We'll be in the most responsible position. It's our heritage. You know, we need to understand it. We need to conserve it. Hey, but you can come and help us do it. That might be the way forward. Well, speaking of countries leading their own research, in Italy, they've started making a new independent funding agency. Sam, what can you tell me about this? This is, yes, this is a a rare attempt by Italy to create a funding agency of the type that are quite common in the US and elsewhere in the European Union. In fact, we think that Italy is probably the last of the big economies not to have one. So Italy wants to move away from this idea of having ministers and ministerial teams involved in research priority and funding and actually to give that role to um, a more autonomous agency, which they're calling ANR. And this may be a bit of a naive question, but what's the benefit of having like an independent autonomous agency? I think there are several reasons why this is really important and and why it's a bit of a surprise that Italy's sort of taken this long to get here. The first question is that when you have research questions and you want to put out again calls for proposals, you kind of want the community to be involved in setting what those questions are. They know the boundaries and the contours of a field, where are the gaps, what are the questions that need answering. And you also want them to be doing the peer reviewing around that. And so those roles are generally best done outside of a government body. Of course, the government still provides the funding, but they, they would sit at arm's length. With this move towards it, I guess scientists are quite happy in Italy? They are certainly really excited, a lot of anticipation. I think a little bit of nervousness as well, because... It's a first, lots of things are being promised and people are not sure whether those promises will be kept. And also because you would expect that if the agency is to be autonomous, then there'd be 
lots of consultation with universities, with independent scientists in labs or maybe in companies. And that consultation hasn't got going yet. So there's a sort of draft law that's being discussed and debated in parliament. But the consultation process with the community hasn't started. And I think when that gets going at that point, I think people will feel a little bit more happier. What are the concerns that people have with the draft law as it currently stands? So the main concerns I have is, for example, I think the, the, one of the big sort of flags is that there might be representatives of ministries sitting on governing bodies and possibly even the prime minister's office. So that's like, you know, the top person sitting on a science funding agency. That's like weird. You know, that really is weird. So I think that is, uh, is, is a bit of a flag. And I think also the sort of, you know, you want to get down to the nitty gritty fine print rules of you know, how many peer review panels and how will you choose peer reviewers? Who's going to make those choices? Will it be the scientists? Will it be other people? So there are some of the kind of unanswered questions. So given that there are these concerns, are there going to be any further changes to this draft as it currently stands? So the the Minister for Education and Research is a really interesting man. His name is Lorenzo Fioramonte. He's a political economist. He's an academic. He was a working academic until very recently. And it's just a sort of it gives you a sense of the political culture in Italy where although he is the minister, but actually he doesn't have all the power and the control. There are other people in other departments who also have influence on this decision. So one of the first tasks for him is in fact to wrest control of the decision making and to try and persuade more of his colleagues to support the idea that you know if you're creating an autonomous agency, then let's start behaving and giving some of that power back to the community and not holding it within the sort of political structure. So he's got a bit of a battle uh, on his hands. Well, I guess we'll keep an eye on this situation in Italy then. Essan, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Nick. Really appreciate it. And listeners, for more on those stories, head over to nature.com slash news. That's all for this week. There's just time to remind you that if you fill out our survey, it'll really help us out. You can find it over at go.nature.com forward slash podsurvey19. That's podsurvey19. Or there'll be a link on the podcast page. I'm Shamini Bundell. And I'm Nick Howe. See you next time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.